News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, sometimes there are stories that seem so far-fetched, they can't possibly be true. Take the case of parasomniacs, people who experience unwanted behaviors during sleep. We are talking complex actions here, even violent acts in some cases. Abnormal sleep behaviors are what our next guest actually investigates as part of his firm, Sleep Forensics Associates. Dr. Michael Kramer, Michelle Kramer Borneman joins us now. He's the lead investigator. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. How do you define parasomnia? Yeah, I think that the, the easiest and general way to uh, define parasomnia is that parasomnias are a type of sleep disorder. There are many sleep disorders. Parasomnias is a specific type of sleep disorder that simply stated are inappropriate and unwanted experiences as well as behaviors associated with sleep. So in general, we talk about sleepwalking behaviors, but sleepwalking is just one type of parasomnia. Other examples might be nightmares. And we talk about sleepwalking, but that's generally what we're talking about. So how many people experience this? Well, this is really interesting because if we look at parasomnias, uh, we kind of have to look at sleep in general. And in an eight-hour period of sleep, we are either in non-REM, rapid eye movement, non-rapid eye movement sleep, or rapid eye movement sleep. And we have about four to six sleep cycles a night, and REM occurs every 90 minutes. So parasomnias can arise out of non-REM sleep. These are kind of the typical sleepwalking behaviors. And the other arises out of REM sleep. Now, in REM sleep, we have rapid eye movements. We typically have dreams in REM sleep, whether or not we remember it. But what's a hallmark feature of REM sleep is that our body is essentially paralyzed in REM sleep. And common sense would dictate that's probably a good thing because you certainly don't want to act out your dreams. But there is REM sleep behavior disorder, which is an actual pathologic condition, which lifts that paralysis off, which allows an individual to now act out their dreams. We now appreciate that REM sleep behavior disorder is not necessarily uncommon because it appears that those with REM sleep behavior disorder, that this is a harbinger or a precursor to conditions such as Parkinson's disease. This just may show itself first as that. So this is typically a fixed um, men, predominantly women as well, at age 55 and beyond, and it typically predates the formal diagnosis of, say, Parkinson's disease and other such disorders. So if we think about the prevalence of Parkinson's disease, not necessarily uncommon. Now, what we see from a forensic perspective are non-REM parasomnias. These are not associated with dreams and typically arise out of slow-wave sleep. I don't really see this as a pathologic condition. Rather, it is part of the normal human condition for which we are, are, are all vulnerable So we look at populations of sleepwalking as a type of non-REM parasomnia. If we look at non-REM parasomnia, such as sleepwalking, very common in children. I think everyone would agree with that. We all have family stories of children sleepwalking, and we typically grow out of it. So the peak prevalence of non-REM parasomnia, such as sleepwalking, 
occurs around age 12 to 14. And reported estimates are anywhere from 12 to 20% of the child population has had some type of parasomnia, typically sleepwalking right. or sleep terror. So, but what, what is it that you investigate? And so it's a lower percentage so that those have sleepwalking, it goes down to 4%. So not necessarily uncommon. Right. What is it that you investigate, though? Because you investigate, it sounds like, some more unique cases. Yeah, so REM sleep behavior disorders, dream and active behavior, and often presents itself as violent behavior. However, that's a clinical issue, and REM sleep behavior is rarely associated with forensic implications. So the forensic implications have to do with sleepwalking events, and it typically involves individuals that have a history of these behaviors in childhood but never really grew out of it, and they continue to be vulnerable uh, to this into adulthood. Now, what happens is that there's a fragmentation in slow-wave sleep that now triggers an activated state, which allows an individual to now act out in complex manner without awareness or memory, though the brain is still globally offline and asleep. And sleepwalking is an example, but the behaviors that are associated with this are typically primitive behaviors, such as defensive posturing, predatory behavior, sexualized behaviors, or they can be overlearned behaviors, such as things that we can do out of muscle memory without thinking, things we can essentially do with our eyes closed, kind of like driving. I mean, you can drive a car. Probably it's, it's so automatic for you. So then now we're talking about behaviors that have modulated beyond conventional sleepwalking and now take on a more complex, more primal, perhaps a violent nature to it. Interesting. Okay, so do people actually claim that they commit crimes while they're sleeping? Uh, well, um, so I have been involved in many criminal cases over the years. Um, and uh, yes, uh, the defense attorney may consider that as a possible explanation. These are typically very bizarre behaviors that are uncharacteristic for the individual. They have no memory for it. And they, they clearly had done it, but how can you account for that? And so I'm typically very skeptical in these cases, but yet um, there are cases that are very legitimate. I've worked for both the prosecution and defense, but yes, uh, it, it can be an effective uh, defense if this is indeed uh, the condition that accounts for the criminal allegation. How, how do you figure that out? How do you figure out that, okay, no, this person really is impacted by this? They're not making this up. Right. Well, you, you can never know with certainty whether somebody can account for that. There, there's nothing. We can only do this by retrospective analysis. It's kind of like a profiler. A profiler can kind of set up a profile of, of the criminal and who might be vulnerable to these type of criminal actions. Well, in a similar manner, through our research and study of parasomnias, we have a pretty good idea of the possible behaviors that can arise from it. So, again, there are certain primitive behaviors that are consistent. They are typically simple uh, in nature. And at least in forensic implications, the victim is almost always an individual who is in close proximity to the vulnerable individual and may have been the individual that triggered it. So, there's a lot of behavioral pattern analysis that comes with research and direct experience to kind of know about the plethora of potential behaviors that can proceed 
and those that can't. Basically, behaviors that become more complex that have multiple steps in them are unlikely uh, to be a sleep-related violent attack. Interesting. Okay, so then can people, if they recognize this or that they are prone to do this, can they stop it from happening? Uh, yes. Uh, so uh, can we do it with, with 100% effectiveness? Well, nothing is 100% effective, unfortunately, in medicine. Um, but once we recognize that an individual is uh, indeed vulnerable to such behaviors, it typically has a history in the childhood that just, they just haven't outgrown, factors that can contribute to it would be anything that destabilizes sleep uh, that can trigger these events, uh, an abrupt something that's abrupt that triggers an abrupt fragmentation out of deeper slow wave sleep. So one condition would be obstructive sleep apnea, a very common condition. Individuals have upper airway collapse, they snore, they can have breath holding events. And with each breath holding events, the brain will abruptly terminate that event by kind of kickstarting breathing. But in so doing, it can fragment sleep. And then that's that fragmentation is the foundation for these behaviors. So in individuals who continue to have that, you certainly want to treat underlying conditions such as obstructive sleep apnea. Another condition might be periodic limb movements. A lot of people might have regular leg movements and twitches. You want to be able to control that. Other factors that tend to increase this would be uh, sleep deprivation, insufficient sleep, because when you have less sleep, the brain will rebound and actually have more deep sleep to try to catch up on sleep. And it's deep sleep or slow-wave sleep, which is the foundation. So insufficient sleep uh, is a factor. You certainly want to address that. Uh, stress, uh, significant anxiety uh, can, can do that as well. So aside from addressing those uh, factors, uh, there are effective medications that can quell this. Uh, so we have medications, but then we also focus on safety in the home to try to recognize that nothing is 100% effective. And what can we do to kind of keep the, the behaviors within boundary, minimizing risks, such as making sure there are no weapons uh, nearby, uh, the individual sleeping. And in the United States, you know, firearms are very common, let alone beside the right. bed on the nightstand. Um you might want to put alarms on the door so that if um, these measures are taken, but an individual still has the potential to get out of bed, then you create barriers that would terminate the behavior, such as a door alarm, you know, things like that. So mm -hmm. there are many things you can do to minimize risk, and then there are uh, certain medications that can be effective. But again, nothing is 100%. So then you also focus on trying to ensure the safety within the environment. Oh, that is wild. Listen, thank you so much for talking to us about it this morning. Thank you. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. All right. So I love this time of year for year-end lists and looking at things and then trying to predict what's going to happen in the year ahead. Tell me, do, do any predictions that you've had for the year ahead when you do this, do they, do they come true? How good are you at doing this, at seeing into the future? I predict that actual events will exceed whatever my meager imagination is prepared <laughs> to come up with. And in fact, we're going to talk about one of those things in the second bit here, which uh, this day in history. But uh, I, I do, you know, I do read the year-end interviews and broadcasts by the politicians. And I must say, David Eby, 
has been more content heavy than a lot of them. I was looking at the transcript of his interview with Richard Zussman of Global, which was broadcast, on, I think, on Boxing Day. And E.B., I will say this, as I said, he does uh, give you some hint of what's coming in the new year. So Zussman asks him, well, what about this affordability thing? You know, a year ago, E.B. promised to give people some relief on affordability. And so the question goes to David E.B., what are you going to do about it in the new year? Uh, rules out cutting the carbon tax. It's, in fact, rules out stopping it from going up. Carbon tax is going up by April the 1st, I think, from about 17 cents per liter at the pump to, sorry, from 14 at the pump to 17 cents at the pump, and that's just the carbon tax share of the tax on gasoline. Premier says, no way, he's not doing that. He does hint again, Simi, at uh, some kind of rebate through BC Hydro. He says he prefers to offer people some cash back and relief that way because the government controls BC Hydro. It's not a nasty private sector profit-taking company, so he likes it. But, but I go over the transcript of that interview, Simi. Uh, the premier's got a problem. BC Hydro's in serious financial trouble. And I don't know where they're going to rustle up the money for a rebate, but in any event, that's what the premier hinted at in his year-end interview. Right. And he admitted that, that Hydro was in trouble too, though, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, there's two things going on. First of all, in spite of what the premier says, BC Hydro has appealed for a rate increase on April the 1st. They want to increase our hydro rates by 2.3%. So I don't know how he squares that with the idea of relief. But to me, a 2.3% increase in rates, even though that's not as great as the rate of inflation at the moment, is still an increase. And if you're going to cancel that out with a rebate, it's like they haul it out of one pocket and jam it into the other. I don't see that one. The other problem, though, is a more serious one, which is drought. So one of the great things about hydropower is that it especially if you clean out the reservoirs ahead of time, doesn't generate a lot of emissions. Uh, it's water and water pours through and you can store the water uh, when you've got a bit of other kinds of power. And BC Hydro two years ago, uh, now, well, 2022, as Premier acknowledges, Simi, uh, made a billion dollars selling its surpluses outside the province. And Hydro does that two ways. They uh, they sell, they store water uh, when prices are down and spill the water when prices are good, and they make a lot of money selling electricity. Made a billion dollars. Well, now, they're, because of the drought, reservoirs are all low. Hydro is having to buy electricity. And the most recent numbers suggest it spent almost half a billion dollars buying electricity, which comes off the bottom line sooner or later. Hydro defers that through these nifty deferral accounts it has where it pushes the cost down the road. Folks, don't try this at home with your family <laughs> yeah, finances. Exactly. Hydro doesn't. Hydro has like a dozen of these deferral accounts and it takes a chartered accountant to figure out how they're doing it. But in any event, if Hydro isn't making money selling power, but in fact is having to buy power, and Hydro is looking at a 2.3% rate increase, I count me as a skeptic that the Premier is going to be able to figure out some way to give people a rebate. I think we're in for some very creative accounting on that issue in the new year. 
But that's what the premier's looking at. He is not looking at what his opponents are saying. The BC Conservatives, second place in the polls, they want to just get rid of the carbon tax. And BC United wants to cap it and offer relief on some other gasoline taxes. So I think we're in for a pretty big political debate around this, but I don't see that at the moment you're going to have to show me how the Premier's fallback position, hydro rebate, is going to be squared with the state of hydro's finances and the drought. I have to say, Ron, I still have trouble wrapping my head around the idea that they had to buy power this year. Yeah, yeah, 20%. Uh, of, That's a lot. Uh, hydros, uh, yeah, you know, and, and uh, well, I mean, you could say that Site C hasn't come online yet. It isn't due to come online for until uh, 2025. Uh, they had to put off filling the reservoir behind Site C this year, partly uh, because of the drought, even though Hydro won't admit that. But yeah, BC Hydro, well, you know, British Columbia economy is consuming an enormous amount of electricity. We're growing. Uh, we're uh, having an awful lot of immigrants arrive here. Uh, some of our industries, which were down uh, or reduced operations during the pandemic, are back. And there is new demand coming online. You know, our, our government would very much like the second phase of LNG to be driven by electricity. They like this new hydrogen plant that we're talking about in Prince George. That plant will consume almost the entire output of Site C. Uh, we're going to electrify all of our vehicles. Uh, we're going to electrify the ferries. We're going to go to electric truck fleets. We're going to plug the cruise ships in. Uh, you know, the, oh, the big battery factory that they promised before Christmas out in Maple Ridge. That one is going to be driven by electricity. And, you know, Simi, all of our electricity at the moment comes from hydro, virtually all of it. They're going to have a tender call in the spring for wind power. Well, it'll take a while to get those approved and built. You don't just do that overnight. In the long run, yes, we may have some wind power, more wind power in BC. Some talk about geothermal. Premier says there are all kinds of, these are his words, weird regulatory obstacles to solar power. I have no idea. What is that? Yeah. He didn't explain also, it, right? Also, wouldn't he know? So, like... Well, I assume he knows, but, you know, maybe there wasn't, uh, they they covered a lot of ground in that interview. People, I think, can still find it on the global website with uh, Richard Zussman, and it's worth listening to because there's some other things that we may talk about uh, tomorrow uh, that also came out of that. But uh, that's the uh, helping us out with the cost of living side of it. And as I said, the only thing the premier hinted at was some kind of rebate on hydro rates. The government can order BC Hydro to do whatever it wants because the government controls the hydro board. There is an independent regulator, Simi, as you know, the BC Utilities Commission. The government can order it to do what it wants to. And I'm sure everybody at the BC UC can remember that the premier was so unhappy with the head of the BC Utilities Commission that the Premier fired the head yes. of the BC Utilities Commission over the summer and appointed his own handpicked guy to run it. So, you know, uh, if the government wants to do rebates for BC Hydro, it can do it. But as I said, Simi, the accounting is going to be fascinating to look at. I love taking a look back at history, and that's what Vaughn Palmer is going to do for us this morning. And this story, Vaughn, oh, talking about this story really brings back some memories. It does indeed. So, Simi, 20 years ago today, 
I was in my office at the legislature. It's sort of mid-morning, and you know, because you've toured the office, that it looks out. Uh, it's behind the buildings, and it looks out right. straight at the Premier's wing and the Cabinet wing of the legislature buildings. And I see out my window RCMP officers, well, police in uniform anyway, carrying boxes of files out of the building. Um and I reacted the way many British Columbians do when something weird and unusual is going on outside their window. I went, oh, they must be making a movie. After all, that's over <laughs> the Christmas holidays. Who the hell right. are raiding? On December the 28th, well, no, the police were actually raiding the offices of two cabinet ministers, or rather their staff, finance minister, transportation minister. They carted away 30 boxes of files and... They had a briefing for the very inquisitive news media saying uh, this all began with a drug investigation two years earlier, and there were suspicions of the involvement of organized crime. <clears throat> and also there was some connection to the then BC Liberal government's sale of the government railway, BC Rail. Uh, so all of this was kind of linked up into a whole bunch of lines of speculation, and the speculation ran rampant, not just that day, Simi, but for many, many years to come. Uh, it all ended with two guilty pleas about 10 years ago, fall of 2012, by two government staffers who pleaded guilty to breach of trust in connection with the sale of the railway. Nobody else was ever charged. The whole matter kind of went away then, but I have to say, Simi, that you go back over the record of all this over 20 years, uh, there are a large number of unanswered questions about it, and I guess we'll never get the answers. Right. So this that's the thing that kind of lingers with me about this is that it obviously there was a lot going on there. And today, 20 years later, we still don't know why. Like, yeah. really, why? Yeah. So th there were two avenues that might have led to more knowledge about this. Uh, the Vancouver Sun, my newspaper post, put 30 questions about the case on the front page. Uh, the New Democrats posted 60 questions on the order paper in the legislature. For a while, the New Democrats were going to hold a public inquiry into what happened if they'd ever taken government. Uh, they promised the public inquiry in the 05 election, the 09 election, the 013, or the 13 election. Oddly enough, they dropped that commitment in the election They actually where they actually formed the government afterward in 2017. And John Horgan had no taste for a public inquiry into this thing. So I guess the public inquiry might have done it. The criminal court proceedings, the drug charges never went anywhere. I mean, they did not result in a, a drug trial in case or a case involving organized crime. The two staffers were put on trial. Um, that case went on through long legal wrangling over access to uh, files and data and emails. Only two witnesses ever got onto the stand. And then uh, the two staffers pleaded guilty. Uh, they got off with uh, two years less a day of probation. They have pretty much disappeared from the public record. The case never went ahead. And so as a result, 
you know, as as you just said, Simi, we there's there's far more unanswered questions about this than any answers. But no evidence was ever produced on the public record that led to criminal charges or corruption charges beyond the two staffers, and they pleaded guilty. Uh, taxpayers picked up their legal bills, by the way. <coughs> oh, I remember that. Bills, That's for sure. Uh, legal bills in this case were about. Well, one estimate was about $20 million. Most of that was paid out during the trial and proceedings. They were, uh, the way it works if you're a government staffer or a politician is your legal bills, you can apply to have your legal bills covered. And they're covered, but if you're guilty, found guilty, uh, you have to pay it back. But in this case, the Crown waived the requirement that the bills be paid back because, as the Attorney General of the time said, there's no money left. Neither of these guys have any resources that we can see, so we're not going to bother with it. So taxpayers uh, picked up the tab and didn't get anything like the number of answers they might have gotten from a public inquiry, but the public inquiry never happened. Hmm. Now, can you imagine if that happened today? Like, uh, it would just be <laughs> relentless. Like it, 20 years ago was pre-social media. So yeah, it, I feel true. like today it would be it would be a different animal entirely. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. After the New Democrats abandoned the idea of a public inquiry, by then I had accumulated 10 bankers boxes full of files on the case, but it included everything from public documentation to wiretap transcripts to wild speculation from all kinds of people. And I, Simi, one day when I was cleaning up my office, I went, there's no way I'm going to sort through all this stuff and figure out what can legitimately preserve in an archive and what might reveal sources and so forth. So I just threw the works out, the whole thing, <laughs> ten, 10 boxes of files. And my friend Keith Baldry Global, who shares the office next to me, said, I got a post on social media that you're throwing your BC Rail files at. Oh, don't yeah. You dare. I don't want somebody going through the garbage, grabbing stuff and drawing conclusions from idle rumors that people passed on to me. So, um, as I said, when the New Democrats decided there wasn't going to be a public inquiry in this, and, and you know, their, their argument by 2017, Simi, was come on, this thing was years ago. No one's going to remember what happened. We're not going to get to the bottom of anything. They concluded it would cost millions of dollars and probably be as frustrating as as well their inquiry into money laundering turned out to be and their inquiry into gas prices turned out to be and the BC Liberal inquiry into the Nanaimo bingo affair turned out to be or the NDP's inquiry into that. And there's a historical topic for another day. We do, Simi, I have to say, seem to specialize in these cases we in British Columbia, which is full of intrigue and speculation and yep. rumor and no, not nearly enough answers at the end of it. Ain't that the truth. All right, Vaughn, thank you for that. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, if you look back at 2023 in Metro Vancouver, one of the stories that, of course, really stands out is a debate over policing in Surrey. And what it has come down to for many people in that whole discussion is whether or not it's time to say goodbye to the RCMP as a community policing force. 
Now, that is a discussion that is being had on a wider scale, too, not just in Surrey. We aren't the only ones talking about this. There have been many reports and commissions even in recent years that have recommended systemic changes for the RCMP. But are those changes actually happening? Now, this is all the subject of a much longer and investigative piece in the National Post that you can read right now. Actually, it's written by our next guest, Ryan Tumulty, who's a parliamentary reporter for The Post and joins us now. Thanks so much for being here. Happy to be here. Why did you dive into this topic? What interested you here? You know, I think we've been seeing a lot of uh, commissions and reports, like you mentioned off the top, all sort of highlighting that they're is a problem with the way the RCMP functions and the way it is structured. You know, we recently had a report uh, in Ottawa, a a National Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, that says that, you know, that focus that the RCMP has on on being the contract police force across the country takes away its ability to focus on other things like, you know, espionage, uh, terrorism, uh, foreign interference, which, of course, has been in the news a lot this year. Um, And it just... It talks about you're seeing more and more um, indications, I think, that the RCMP, as it is currently structured, can't do all of the things that is being asked. Um, And that makes it difficult to do any of the things well. So what are some of those concerns then that you talked about in your piece? So, you know, I'll start with obviously one of the biggest ones, and it came out in a report earlier this year. Uh, It was the report into the Mass Casualty Commission. Um, the Mass Casualty Commission looked into the Nova Scotia deadly shootings, of course, in Porter Creek, um, and it, it found a couple of things um, that were problematic with the RCMP's response, but in some ways they were built into the RCMP as an organization. So the first officers on the scene in Porter Creek after the massacre began um, had really never been to that part of the community before. They were new. They were not from Nova Scotia. Um, and that is how the RCMP works. You know, they take officers from across the country, spread them to postings, often with, to places that they've never lived um, before. Um, and so those officers didn't know the community. They didn't know that there was a, a back road, the kind of rural road that people don't see on maps, but that does still exist. And that's actually how Gabriel Wartman escaped the community. Um, and they didn't change their assessment that he must still be in the community because there was no other way out uh, until six or seven hours later when he started killing again. Um, and there were a lot of concerns about the RCMP's response that night. They were short-staffed because the RCMP is really struggling to meet all of the demands that are on it. Um, there were other concerns about how the RCMP responded that night. And then we saw again, like I was talking about, this issue of them, you know, even though they are not able to respond to these provincial policing, local policing demands, um, they're still stealing resources to try to do that from their federal priorities. Now, are there communities out there other than Surrey, B.C., of course, which we've talked about a lot, but are there other communities in other parts of Canada that are rethinking uh, relationships with the RCMP? Yeah, I mean, Nova Scotia as a whole is looking at whether or not they want to continue having the RCMP. I think this shooting... Uh, did a significant amount of damage to that that province's trust with the RCMP. I'm not sure if they'll move away, but they are studying it. Grand Prairie in northern Alberta is moving away. They're on a five-year plan uh, to move away from the RCMP. That was one of the bigger detachments, but they found that they just weren't able to get uh, the officers there consistently. Um, they were always a few short, um, and that was a big concern for them. So they've decided to move away. 
Um, and I think, you know, a lot of communities are thinking about in an era where you're trying to emphasize policing at a community level, where you're trying to build relationships, um, does it make sense to have officers who are not from the community and who may rotate out of the community uh, on a regular basis? Right. Now, I know from reading your piece, Ryan, there are obviously a lot of concerns that are expressed here. But I guess the big question is, does the RCMP realize this at the leadership, at the top? Has there been any effort made for that systemic change? You know, I think there's going to be a lot. I think that's an open question um, because there these concerns that, you know, I'm raising in the piece that have been raised in these recent reports, they've been raised before, you know, uh, many, many times in different reports, and they haven't been addressed so far. Um, so I think there's a fair amount of concern about that. The RCMP says they are committed this time. You know, the Mass Casualty Commission, I think they very much realize was something they have to respond to, have to address. They are trying to do more on recruiting so that they aren't so short in many cases. But, you know, if you want to be an RCMP officer today, uh, you have to sign up to go to the training academy for six months. And then in many cases, not all, they have loosened some of these requirements. But in many cases, you have to commit to to go where the RCMP wants you to go, at least out of that first uh, rotation. So, you know, an RCMP, uh, a person from Nova Scotia who signs up to be an RCMP officer could end up doing their whole career in BC. Uh, someone from Saskatchewan could be sent to Newfoundland or the Arctic or something like that, a community they're, they're not close to. Um, so I know, you know, the most recent RCMP report on this said they wanted to put 40 classes of uh, cadets through the academy in the last year. They only did 28. So they are really struggling there. And a lot of these things, I think, are systemic. I think the RCMP has an absolute proud history and a deep legacy, and it is a it is a symbol of Canada. You know, when people think of Canada, they think of the Mounties in that red shirt uniform. But I think there has to be a bigger conversation about is that still a workable model for a 21st century police force? Is that um, a discussion that the federal government seems to want to have? So I've talked to sources inside uh, the government who say that this is a conversation that is ongoing. They realize it's a problem. I'm not sure it is top of the list, frankly, uh, for the federal liberals. There's a lot going on. Um, But, you know, the sources I talked to said that, yes, this is an open and ongoing conversation. Uh, The RCMP has these provincial policing contracts. Uh, They are up for renewal. Now, they're not up for renewal until 2032, but... If you're talking about making a big change, you have to give provinces a lot of time to adapt. You know, I know the process in Surrey, I think, uh, took over five years. The process in Grand Prairie is going to take five years. If you were doing that on a provincial scale, people would need lots of time. Um, And so I think that's something that uh, we'll see start to emerge in the next year or two, uh, some sort of firm detail of where the RCMP is going with those contracts. Um, But I think it is, uh, you know, something that is being discussed inside the federal government. Would you say in all the interviews that you did, the information that you gathered across Canada, are people who are interested in policing kind of paying attention to what happened in Surrey? Um, I think, yes. I think people are paying attention to what's happening in Surrey. I think people are paying attention to what's happening in Grand Prairie and Alberta more broadly. Um, But, um, yeah, I think people are paying attention to these debates. All right. So it could be a time for change. What did the RCMP have to say about all this? You know, the RCMP sees a lot of value in its contract policing model. I, I did ask for interviews with, you know, senior leadership, like commissioners or deputy commissioners. I didn't get any of that. 
but they see, you know, they say they are responding to um, the Mass Casualty Commission. Uh, they say they are working on recruitment and trying to improve it and also try to improve their recruitment even into that federal police force, you know, the police force that looks into those serious espionage cases and counterterrorism and those sort of big federal level crimes. Um, I think there is an acknowledgement that there needs to be change. I just I don't know how an organization that is 150 years old is going to be able to change if they're going to be able to change quickly enough. All right, Ryan, thanks so much for your time this morning. No problem. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about charisma this morning. What is it about some people that just draws you to them? Are they funnier? Are they just more interesting? Are they smarter? Well, no, not particularly. We usually just chalk it up to what we call charisma. And it has a huge effect on things like who we vote for and who we maybe spend time with or listen to or what we watch. And also, of course, this is a big one, what we are drawn to on social media. In other words, it has a big impact on what influences us. Now, this is something that our next guest has been exploring. Adrian Matei is a culture-oriented journalist and editor for The Atlantic and joins us now. Adrian, thanks for being here. Hi, Sammy. Thanks so much for having me. So what is it that makes up charisma, do you think? So I think that charisma is a very human and very complex combination of traits. Um, to me, charisma is underpinned by a sort of empathy and a sensitivity um, but I think that when we talk about charisma, we often see it as something that can be harnessed for an individual's benefit, something that can incite people to vote for you or make you more attractive um, or kind of get you from A to B. And I think that maybe that's not the best way to look at charisma. Oh, OK, well, how do you think we should look at it? So in the article that I wrote for The Atlantic, um, I kind of presented this concept of the vibe pope, which is a way to... I'm sorry, did you say like a, vibe pope? A vibe pope, um, which <laughs> okay, is a, a tongue-in-cheek kind of way to refer to people who use their charisma to um, make others around them feel seen and comfortable um, and kind of unite people under a good time. So um, kind of making occasions comfortable and fun for everyone. Right. But that would entail people knowing that they have that charisma. You're, out, you're saying that they're using it for good rather than evil. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that necessarily charisma is used for evil if we're using it in a self-serving way, but it's sort of like uh, spreading the gift around and using it for others' benefit. Does everybody know that they have it though? Like if you have it, do you know you have it? I think that if you're a vibe pope, you probably have an inkling <laughs> that you are that person at the party who is energetically facilitating, um, you know, the the uh, thing that makes the event feel good. I think that it's almost more do other people realize that you have it? Do other people realize that you're the reason um, that your parties feel great um, or that people feel really good around you? And uh, I think with this kind of invisible um, gift, sometimes it can go overlooked and we don't really notice what's happening. And uh, especially this time of year, I think it's important for us to have a bit of unawareness of and a sensitivity to the people in our lives who just have a knack for making us feel really good. Hmm. And can you, do you think, learn to become a vibe pope or is that just something that you have? Well, honing our interpersonal skills is definitely a constant process. And it's something that just requires presence and the ability to look around and notice what is happening in a space, 
you know, who's talking, who might need a little encouragement to join in. Is there something that could make this more comfortable to myself or others? So, yeah, I really do think that it is a learnable process and um, a skill that can be just developed through awareness and through um, kind of interest in developing it. There's a lot of this in social media, isn't there, where you don't realize that perhaps that's why you're following certain people. Yeah, absolutely. I think that when you're an influencer, having charisma is a key talent. Right. So then how do we use that? How do you, how do you say, how how could you learn, do you think, to become more of a vibe pope? Um, Well, I think that for me, the idea of a vibe pope is somebody who is really connected to empathetically kind of understanding what the people around them need. So I would suggest being in your next social situation and and noticing, like, maybe who's doing the emotional labor in this situation? Um, You know, when we think of parties, we think of all of these things that they require, like planning and cooking and decorating. But there's also this energetic facilitation that happens when we're in a group where sometimes uh, somebody is kind of taking the lead on that. And just kind of noticing how we're contributing to the dynamic. Are we being grumpy? Are we being recalcitrant? Are we hogging the uh, the spotlight? How can we kind of share the good energy and make the people around us feel like they're having a really good time too? How can we kind of alleviate the burden of carrying the vibe from uh, the people who do it most intuitively? Because I think that sometimes, you know, people are naturally kind of vibe popes, but sometimes they step up to the emotional plate because they sense that nobody else is going to. And it's a really important role um, when you think about gatherings and special occasions, especially around the holidays. I am totally going to do this at the next gathering I am at. Uh, Adrian, thank you so much for your time. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. I love a good nature story. I'm sure you do too, because you know what we all loved in 2023? Cheering for nature, especially animals that seem to, or nature that seem to kind of push back against humans. Remember the story about the orcas attacking boats in the Strait of Gibraltar? Oh boy, that was everywhere. That was that definitely went viral. But that wasn't the only story like that from this past year. There were stories about pigs or wild boars that were running amok everywhere and taking over. Otters attacking surfboards. That was a big one down in California too. So we're going to talk more about that. What is going on? Dr. Jeffrey Whitehall joins us now, professor of political theory at Acadia University. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, good morning. So this is a fascinating idea. The, we cheer for animals that are fighting back. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's such an interesting phenomenon. Um, you know, I was, I, so I wrote this paper called When They Fight Back, and I was trying to think through that exact, that exact question. I was trying to think about how do we understand when animals fight back and how do we do it in a way that doesn't put animal or humans at the center of it? And it was a really tricky puzzle to try to figure out of why do we care so much when animals push back and what does that mean for us? Okay, did you figure it out? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have some ideas. Uh, I think that when, you know, orcas, uh, uh, seals, pigs, all these kinds of, you know, animals uh, fight back, I think that we see them as kind of opportunities for us to reflect about our own behavior and our own condition. So usually when an animal 
uh, fights back, we two kinds of things happen. We either say, uh, hey, I, you know, do they really mean to do it? Is it intentional? Do they have agency? Are they conscious? And so we're trying to measure whether or not their actions are kind of like what we would do if we were in that situation. And so they, be, they act kind of like a mirror. And, uh, and then the other one we do is we kind of start to explain away their behavior. We start to say, uh, oh, well, they're just protecting their, their territory or they're just playing or they're just wild or something like that. And so it's a really tricky situation because at one level, we're just reaffirming what we are um, by saying that animals aren't. And then we turn around and say, well, they don't, their actions don't count because they're just being animals. And so it really is a tricky puzzle to try to, 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 try to get our head around. Right. But if they're just being animals, don't. it's amazing that for humans that we don't think, oh, wait, are they trying to tell us something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. And that's why we so often ask the question, do animals have language? And then we usually say, well, you know, and there's all these kinds of efforts to measure animal language and their capacities and stuff like that. But I, I kind of took a bit of a pivot on this. And I, instead of going down that path to try to show that animals are just like us, who are also animals, um, I, I, I pivoted in saying that what was interesting was that they were resisting. And it was the fact that they resisted, which was enough for me. And, uh, and so to think about what animal resistance means is to think about the ways in which our, how humans are acting in the world and how animals are acting in the world don't line up. And so there's this constant friction between the the way that humans are living and the way that animals are living and we recognize that through these moments of of resistance and resistance is sufficient for us to say that wait a minute animals have interests and humans have interests and we need to at some level reconcile what's going on between the, between uh you know these these different ways of being in the world. Right. Do you think it scares us a little bit? Like I was thinking about the, the orcas in the Strait of Gibraltar, how they were attacking the boats, the, the fishing boats there. And, and mm. on the one hand, it did seem to kind of scare people in the vicinity there. Yeah, totally. It's, don't you think it's kind of similar to a parallel conversation to AI? Of people saying, well, wait a minute, what if AI becomes conscious and is trying to tell us something? Because the only thing we seem to be able to imagine is forms of domination. So we say, oh, no, if animals are sentient, then are they trying to dominate us? And so oh, we no, don't want to know. Becomes sentient. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, we're just kind of we're I think it's because of the story we've been telling ourselves about ourselves for so long, which is that we're engaged in forms of like we're in a competition for supremacy and so like we're the top of the food chain right like we're look at us up here uh dr what does that say about us then like our why do we cheer for these stories then yeah i think that we're i think that that story of human supremacy or all forms of supremacy and mastery are you know are dying I, i i that's my hope is that it's no longer a, a great measure to think about success uh, as supremacy and domination. And so I think that uh, when we see these other forms of existence pushing back and, and challenging that story, I think, I think we can get on board with that. I think that we can say, hey, yeah, we can give up. There's so, there's, you know, we, we have more to gain by giving up notions of supremacy than we have by reasserting supremacy over and over and over. Right. Do we study it enough, do you think, when we do see these examples? 
Well, I think that was what was, you know, really the big takeaway in this paper that I wrote uh, was the, how much uh, humans focus on animal resistance. You know, that's the the orcas and those types of things. Those are the things that get onto the news and so on. But really, if you think about how animal behavior studies or farms or in the laboratories and so on, almost all of our scientific endeavors are uh, organized at some level about studying uh, the reactions of other things and the forms of resistance that exist in these other things. And then we try to control them and minimize them. So we try to minimize how animals react to certain kinds of, um, you know, practices and so on. And then that's animal behavior studies. And, and so I think we're constantly studying it. I think human, um, human existence is organized around uh, defeating animal resistance. And I think it probably should change. It, maybe it's, is it because we don't really want to know? Like we don't want to study it too much because then what does that say about us and what we are doing? Um, <clears throat> yeah, well, I think, again, I think it's kind of a twin. I think at one level we do want to know because we do want to defeat it at, a, at an industry scientific level. I think on a personal level, I think... You know, what's so fascinating is that even when animals aren't there, we still imagine that they're resisting us. So whether it's in fiction or stories or movies or all these kinds of things, we, we, we put animals into a, into a relationship with us so that we can figure out where we're at in our, you know, as a species, where we're at as a, as a, as a culture, where we're at in terms of all these different kinds of questions. The animals become a mirror for us to evaluate um, who we are and what we're doing at any particular time. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I don't, so sure. I think whenever we look in the mirror, you know, even, you know, I look in the mirror every day and if I spend a little too long, I start to notice blemishes right. <laughs> or maybe I notice it right <laughs> off the bat. And you just start, you know, you start to think about who am I, what am I doing? Why am I doing these things? And it takes a lot to be able to say, okay, well, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to change these things that, that are in my life and I'm going to, and do it in, in, you know, not in the long, you know, uh, way down the road, but I'm going to start to do it today. And it takes, a, it takes a lot. It takes a lot to look in the mirror and actually have an honest conversation with where you're at. Very true. Listen, thanks so much for your time this morning. Okay. Thanks so much for reaching out. This is Mornings with Simi. Cell phones in our schools. Well, this has become a hot topic with the news this week that Quebec is joining Ontario in limiting cell phone use in classrooms for kindergarten to grade 12. And I do mean limiting, not completely eliminating. Both provinces have left areas for discretion for teachers to use mobile devices as a learning tool, but no more widespread accessibility. So yesterday on the show, we heard from education advocate Tara Houle, who feels it's about time B. BC joined Ontario and Quebec and eliminated the social aspect of cell phones from schools. What we've seen in the last 10 years, you know, with this upsurge of cell phone use, especially amongst our kids, is that there's even more distractions. We have to understand that schools are a place of learning. It's, it's an inferior learning resource. The evidence suggests that it doesn't work. It doesn't work very effectively, so why have them? So that was Tara Hull yesterday on the show. And after that interview, I heard from our next guest. Dave McChrystal is the president of Computer Using Educators of BC. Dave, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. Now, you really wanted to talk about this issue of cell phones in schools. Why do you feel so strongly about this? 
Well, I think that it's really important that um, we don't wrap together the ills of social media and societal challenges with um, the use of a powerful learning tool. Uh, Cell phones can provide students with access to all sorts of things, and I think that we confuse social media use with the tool, and um, that's something that we need to consider. So... Equity is a huge issue in schools, and lots of kids um, are asked to bring devices to school. They can't afford a cell phone, or sorry, they can't afford a tablet or a laptop, so all they have is a cell phone. And that's that's what they they have, that's what they need in order to conduct their learning. Okay, so you believe that a cell phone at school is a good learning tool. How? So, I mean, with a mobile device, uh, you can do things that you can't do easily with a laptop. You can record images, video, capture audio, scan 3D models. So if, for example, I was a new ELL uh, or English language learner, I'm new to Canada, and I'm trying to communicate with um, my peers, the teacher, it's a lot easier for that student to pull a device out of their pocket, uh, talk to it, it translates automatically Uh, what they're saying, and then they can communicate more effectively. Uh, Things like a a cooking lab teacher, uh, foods teacher, if they want to have their students make make a cooking video, they can't really do that with a laptop. Um, So I think that having a blanket ban on mobile devices is probably a step too far, and I think that we need to consider that lots of teachers do use and embrace the technologies Um, that students have in their pockets uh, to enhance their learning. You talked about equality of resources there, Dave, but I mean, not every child can afford a mobile phone either. No, that's totally true. And I think that's a huge issue. And and I think the the interview yesterday, um, it was stated that there was, it was an inferior resource. And I would agree, it's not a perfect resource, but um, the way funding in BC works is school boards are given money by the government and they determine how they're going to spend it. And often schools don't have up-to-date textbooks. They don't have up-to-date resources. So teachers are in, are end up making their own resources, posting them online, and then kids need a way to access those. Well, in a perfect world, every kid would have a laptop or a tablet provided by the government. But at this time, that's not the case. So, most students have access to uh, a cell phone. Not all do, but most do. And it's kind of a stopgap measure for them. But how do you separate that positive aspect that you're talking about with all the bad stuff that comes with giving kids access to cell phones in school? Well, I think that a lot of that comes down to parents. Parents are usually the ones that buy the cell phones. It's not the schools or teachers buying the kids the cell phones. So parents need to talk to their kids about how they use those devices. Are they checking how their students using social media? Are they aware of what apps or games they're playing? What they're watching when they're on YouTube or TikTok? Because there are a lot of things that, you know, come with mobile devices um, or can be added to mobile devices like apps that aren't necessarily the best things to have. So that's a parental responsibility. Pay attention to what your kids are doing on their devices. Don't you think, though, David, that there's also teachers out there who say, listen, I would like to be free of managing the cell phone use in a classroom? 
Yeah. So yesterday I posted something on my Facebook account and I had colleagues say, you know, it would be really nice to have no cell phones in, in my classroom. And I agree. If you're, if you're a teacher and you don't want cell phones in your classroom, there's lots of opportunity for you to have a, a cell phone hotel at the front of your classroom where all the kids, you know, put their phone in their, the hotel room and then they pick it up at the end of class. And then in the next class, maybe the foods teacher does want you to have your cell phone out to look at the recipe they posted on their website instead of having a printed paper. Having a four laptops on a workstation probably isn't as effective as having a cell phone or two that are a lot smaller. Um, so I think that there's a balance in teacher autonomy and what they need in their classrooms is really important. Do you think this is more about then what those kids are doing with their cell phones, not in the classroom, but still at school? Yeah, I think definitely kids, you know, we hear about bullying. There's lots of uh, challenges with social media. And I think that most of that probably happens outside of school hours. And I would never say that it doesn't happen during school. But that comes down to education and us talking to, you know, the students and making sure that they know what polite, respectful communication looks like. And just like if um, in the old days, if, if I printed a poster and, uh, of somebody I didn't like and hung it up around the school, I'd probably get in trouble for that. And, and those things would continue with cell phones. But it comes down to education and making sure that kids know what's right and what's wrong and then monitoring it. And that's up to parents to do. Um, if a teacher doesn't want cell phones in their classroom, then they should tell the kids, keep them in their bag, put them at the front of the room, put them in the hotel, uh, don't use them in class. But if I do want my learners to have their phones for a variety of reasons, then I should have that ability. Are cell phones making learning better, Dave? Are, is it making, are they making learning more effective? I don't. That's a tough question. I think they're making learning different. So um, the ability of students to capture their learning is something that is new. Before we had a hard time to like capture what we were doing. Now we can make a video of something or record audio. I can record a speech into my cell phone if I'm afraid to present it in front of uh, the class and then play it back to my teacher. And yes, I might be losing a little bit of learning in the presentation skills, but I would, um, but I would still be able to show that I can communicate orally. Right. But shouldn't we only be allowing things in the classroom that are improving the student learning experience? Well, I think improving, improving comes down to what do we um, consider improvement and with the changes to the way assessments happened over the last a little while, and that's a little bit of a different discussion with report cards and stuff, but we're looking at assessing learning over time as opposed to individual assignments. And I think that it's hard for us um, to understand the change in the system, but we're looking at how, how kids are progressing. And I think that the mobile device allows us to record the progression a little bit more effectively over time than, say, paper and pen or posters. Right, but there is certainly a feeling that perhaps kids aren't progressing in the way that they should or, or, or could be, right, when you look at the overall kind of scores of, of how kids are doing. Well, I think, I think that, that that feeling is true, and I think there's lots of things we can attribute that to uh, that aren't talked about, things like uh, societal challenges, two parents working, uh, or parents working multiple jobs and not being around as much. I think that um, we can equate that with um, 
kids, because their parents aren't around, aren't getting out in the community as much as they did in the past. So I think that cell phones are not perfect, but I think that we're, we're wrapping up um, all sorts of challenges and saying, well, it's the mobile device, it's social media, and we're not considering the lack of funding, the lack of teachers, uh, the lack of um, traditional learning resources that we have in schools across the province. Well, thanks for the discussion this morning. We appreciate that. Thank you, Simi. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you heard of AFOLs? That is Adult Fans of Lego. Yes, there are a lot of them. It's not just for when you were a kid anymore and playing with it. And you know what many of these adult fans of Lego are finding? That it's not just a hobby. It actually helps their mental health. Just check it out on YouTube here too because the number of adults that are actually doing really well You know, leaving their traditional jobs, actually, building Lego full time, posting these videos on YouTube, you'd be shocked at the number of people who are actually doing this. And there are shows, right? Shows like Lego Masters, which is a show that our next guest actually participated in. It is Stephen Yeo, who's a Calgary firefighter and the runner up in Lego Masters season three. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Hey, thanks for having me. What do you love about Lego? Lego is a multifaceted element in my world. It was something I got to do with my kids when they were really young, and it's also something that I'm now doing with them as teenagers and getting my wife involved in having true family activities. Okay, but I've noticed as well that Lego is more and more kind of targeting their items to adults like you, Stephen. Isn't that what they're doing? Absolutely. It seems like the trend has gone that way. I think post-pandemic, there were a lot of people that were looking for uh, meaningful hobbies that they could do from the home front. And Lego was one of those things that was very easily accessible. Uh, So the Lego Corporation, realizing that more adults were getting involved with it, I think they're starting to target sets specifically for the adult community now, which I appreciate. Okay, so what do you build? What do you do? Well, I'm what's called a mock builder. So I do my own creations. So typically when a new set comes out, even though it excites me that the the new modular, the new car, the new um, buildings of, of various types have, have come out there, I look at the parts and pieces that are involved in it. And then I take the inventory and I figure out if I want to own those bricks in particular. So when I buy a set, I'll build it once, I'll deconstruct it, and then those bricks go into my brick inventory. And then I do large-scale creations for um, things like conventions. And that's what got me recognized for Lego Masters. Okay, wait a minute. What is, I have to know, what does, how big is your brick inventory? <laughs> have you seen the show Lego Masters? <laughs> I've only watched a little bit of it and I know that it can get pretty serious, but tell me how big yours is. Um, I, I have what I call my brick pit as well. It would be in line with what they, they have on the show. Um, I'm, I'm very fortunate that for me, this hobby is very, very deep-seated and long-rooted. For me, I, I got into Lego back in the 70s. So I've had a few decades to collect, and I've, I've got multiple millions of parts and pieces. So uh, I have a very large inventory of parts. Okay, what don't you have? What do you still look for? Well, I'm always looking for vintage sets, because as a kid, I could only afford what my allowance uh, would, would give me. So it was mostly the smaller sets. So the bigger things were more elusive to me as a kid unless I got them as Christmas gifts or birthday gifts. So uh, as an adult enthusiast, I'm still a collector at heart. And when I look at Facebook Marketplace or those types of uh, secondary markets, if I see a vintage set that I wanted as a kid, then I home in on those ones. Okay, wait a minute. You said you have kids, right? Because you talked about this as a family activity. 
Yeah, yeah. I've got three kids who were deep into it very early on, and now they're 19, 17, and 15. And they're maybe a little little more casually involved because they have other things like friends and schools and cars and stuff like that to right. occupy them. But they talk they about, also, you know, they're like, our, our dad. <laughs> they yeah, tell their friends, well, our dad is seriously into Lego. Yeah, and when they have friends come over and, and they say, hey, we're a Lego family, usually everyone has a relationship with Lego and people will say, yeah, we have a lot of Lego. And then they walk into our basement and they <laughs> they get a little awestruck. <laughs> They're like, yeah, we've got Lego. Not like this, though. How long yeah. have you been doing this for, Stephen? Like, has it been your whole life? It's been pretty much my whole life. I believe my first set I got was 78 or 79. Um, and then ever since that, it was kind of the focal point of what I wanted for gifts around the Christmas season and birthdays and, and such. Um, as a younger adult putting myself through university, it had to take the back burner because I couldn't really afford it because it's not the, the cheapest of hobbies to get into. No, it is uh, not. But as soon, <laughs> yeah, as, as, soon as I, I had a, a decent profession, I started accumulating more. And then once I had kids, it was just carte blanche for me to go crazy with it. Okay. What does it do for you then? Does it help you relax? Does it help you focus? Oh, absolutely. It's a total relaxation piece for me. And perhaps at the time, I I wasn't cognizant of it being that way right then and there. But I have a very cerebral job as a Calgary firefighter. Uh, I get exposed to a lot of psychological stresses in this world. And also raising a young family, it's very stressful. So it, uh, it gave me this escape at the end of the day. So once the kids were in bed, I would go down to my little studio space and I'd pull out a, a box set to create and then modify it and change it into things that I wanted. And I didn't realize at the time that that was that um, mental escape, the, the, the step away from logic centers and right. being truly creative and give yourself a little internal balance. Where do you find your inspirations then? Do you see things and think, oh, I want to build that? Oh, yeah. I, I, the entire world I look at around me is how can I recreate it in Lego whether it's a tree when I'm walking the dog or um, a building as I drive down the street or uh, something inspirational from pop culture movies. I, I like to just recreate the things that jump out at me. Wait a minute, Stephen, do you keep, you can't keep all these things. Like, so are you creating these things and then, and then breaking them apart again? Yeah. The pr- pure joy of Lego is that each brick can have numerous possibilities. So one day it'll be part of a building and the next day it'll be part of a car. And then the week after that, it'll be part of a landscape. So uh, depending on on the convention season and the conventions that I plan on going to, because there's multiple all across the country all all year round, and even outside of uh, Canada and the United States, there's some really big conventions. I'll build things and then display them for two or three or four shows, and then they come back home and they get decommissioned and pulled apart. Okay, do you do that? Does that ever hurt you? Like, is that, no, is that I hard? Love it. I, I love it. There's a few pieces over the years I've become quite attached to, so they've stayed on my my. Um, my little shelf of creativity down in my studio. But ultimately, over time, all those parts get repurposed into new projects. So what are I'm, those pieces I'm, that you're most proud of? Uh, one of the pieces I'm most proud of uh, is a house um, from the movie Up, that multicolored house. Yes. So but before it actually became a Lego set about 10 years ago, my kids encouraged me to build it because they liked, they liked asking to build things that didn't currently exist in the Lego inventory. So that was one of my all-time favorites, uh, and I've, I've kept it around for a little while. And also, my my mom, when I was growing up, The Wizard of Oz was her favorite movie. So uh, about six, seven years ago, they created Wizard of Oz figures for the Lego Movie 2. And I did the classic movie poster, Yellow Brick Road, with the Emerald Palace in the background. So that's another one of my faves. So cool. Did you ever think, though, like looking at that, looking at your basement, going to these conventions, do you ever have a moment where you go, I, I really can't believe I'm doing this like with Lego? Well, this last couple of years in particular, um, Lego was just 
something that I had a niche for. My family enjoyed it. Then I joined the Lego club. So I was with like-minded people. And I, I just felt like the universe was fairly small. And I went to conventions and then realized it was bigger. And then I got invited to participate in Lego Masters. And I didn't fully comprehend the magnitude of that experience until after the fact. And now Did I go to conventions and people want autographs and pictures. It's, it's quite phenomenal. <laughs> Do you feel I, like I you're with I'd your people? You go there and you're like, oh, these are my people. These are totally my people. Absolutely. <laughs> so what do you have left to do here? Do you just more things that you want to build, more kits that you want to get? Uh, I'm always collecting. I'm always looking. Um, Lego does hard releases of new sets a couple times a year. So I'm always anticipating the newest, latest and greatest sets. But again, not always because I want to recreate or build those sets, but I want to use those parts right. and pieces for other projects. So it's uh, it, it never stops for me. There's always something on the back burner. This is what I'm curious about with Lego, right? Because my kids went through that big time Lego phase. Like, do you prefer the kits where you're going to build something specific or do you want the loose Lego? Uh, Often it's the loose parts that are going to interest me the most. But that said, they they do a highly anticipated modular building every single year. and They only release one a year. And I I just built the one from this upcoming year yesterday so yesterday was international build day which they encourage you to find a set that you want to build and build it so that was my project yesterday and that one will stay built did you say rebuild it so like do you take things down then maybe build them again sometimes if i if i want the challenge of uh this is this is how deep of a nerd you can be with this stuff sometimes i'll build (laughs) it in the way that the box is intended and then sometimes i'll do the mirror image build of it just to test my my knowledge on how things work because sometimes building it left-handed versus right-handed is a little bit different Okay. Okay. I am truly impressed now. <laughs> truly impressed. Where can people see your work, Stephen? Uh, I'm most, I'm, I'm under yo-yo firebricks. Um, beyond that, I go to convention. A big one actually out your way. Uh, it's called Brick Can. It happens in the spring. I'm one of the original members that helps organize it. So anyone who's interested in, in seeing amazing creations in your area of the world, it's the, I believe it's in April this upcoming year. And uh, it's well worth it. They do public viewings on Saturday and Sunday. What's it called again? It's called Brick Can. All right. I'm going to have to look it up. I'm sure there are people who'd want to see this. Stephen, thank you so much for teaching us about this today. You're quite welcome. Thanks for having me on your show. This is Mornings with Simi. 